Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. sermon comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 35 through 49. The word of God speaks to us. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is God's word to us. Awesome. Hey, you guys can grab a seat. Thanks, Mona. Hey, good morning, guys. It's good to see you. If we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors. Uh, I've been on vacation the last two weeks, so it's good to to finally be back with you preaching. Uh, we gather every Sunday, and we gather to both remember the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, his future and final return to this earth uh, that will happen in the future, and we gather to rehearse the story again and again to live in it, to remember who he's made us and how he's called us to live. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what we're doing on Sundays. We do that every Sunday uh, because we forget every, every week. We forget this good news, and, and it's good to be reminded. Amen? Uh, I'm stoked about today. It's going to be a really fun one. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, that's where we're going to be. The text that we just read, we're going to unpack it. By the way, bring your Bible. If you have like seven or eight like I do at my house, bring one of them and read along with us. That way you can make sure that what we're saying up here is actually in the Bible. We're not just making stuff up. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you or uh, somewhere around you, and you can just take that with you. That's our gift to you. So let me pray for us, and then we will jump in. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to, to gather and remember and rehearse this story. 
And today, I pray that you would be the one to teach us. God, I I don't assume that my words are particularly helpful today uh, or particularly insightful today, but your word is powerful. And we want to hear from your word. We want to be shaped as your people by this truth. And so where our imaginations of the future are off, where our uh, expectations of what's going to happen upon death are wrong, where we've bought into some narrative that is not uh, truly in your word or in your heart, I pray that you'd correct us and that you'd actually replace it with what's real and what's true because your word and your truth are so much better than what we often make up. So just come and move and meet us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. I'll never uh, forget an experience I had when I was probably 11 or 12 years old. Uh, I had spent the day, it was the summertime, I'd spent the day at a friend's house, and uh, his mom and him jumped in the car to drive me back to my house, and when they dropped me off at my house, all of the cars were in the driveway, and I say all of the cars because I'm one of 10, and so there was a lot of cars, there's a lot of people in my house, 12 of us in a very small house, and so all the cars are in the driveway, and I walk up to the door, they leave, and as they're driving off, I notice to go knock on the door that it's not only unlocked, but it's a little bit off, like it's a little bit open, it's it's not clicked shut all the way, and so I was like, that's weird, so I pushed the door open, and I'm like, hey guys, I'm home, I'm, I'm, I'm back, no response. Hey, hey, guys, I'm home. Uh, where, where's everybody at? And I start, like, yelling, guys, guys. And, um, and, and no one's there. Like, I can't find anybody. It's so weird to me. My mom never told me that they were going to go anywhere. And it's clear that no one did go anywhere because all the cars are in the front. And yet I can't find anybody in my house. And so I assumed what any good church-going kid in the 90s assumed. <laughs> oh, my gosh, the rapture's happened. And I've been left behind. I knew it. I knew I was a false convert, right? And... And so I just kind of had a crisis, and I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but that was my very first thought, I kid you not. And I don't know what I thought about my friend and his mom that dropped me off. I was like, maybe they've been lying too and pretending to be Christians. I mean, I didn't really connect the dots about, you know, they were fine, but so I can't find anybody. That first thought might make sense if you grew up in a context like I did. The second thought may not make any sense to you at all, but it's no kidding exactly what happened in my head. I went from thinking the rapture happened to going, well, I guess since the rapture's happened and I've already been left behind, who cares how I live now? So I'm going to take up cussing. <laughs> and so I, I, I'm not lying. I, I, I headed up the stairs and with every step, I shouted a new cuss word, just <laughs> shouting in my house cuss words like, you know, take that, right? Like, who cares? My eternal fate has been settled. So it doesn't matter if I become a professional cusser. That was like in my head, that logic made sense to me. And that's literally what happened. Now, uh, my, my eternal fate quickly like uh, was, was thankfully resolved by the time I got to the top of the stairs. I looked out the window and my entire family's just fine. They're all there outside at the next door neighbor's house, which happened to be my grandma and grandpa's house. And they're just swimming in the pool, having a great time. So then I felt the conviction of like, oh, oh my gosh, what have I done with my life? This was literally what happened to me. Now, why do I tell you that story? If you're like, oh, Pastor Andrew's gonna make fun of the rapture again. No, not this week. I I will make fun of the rapture next week, uh, but, but that's for next week, not this week. This week, actually, here's what I want you to realize, is even though that's a silly, stupid story about some church kid in the 90s, it reveals something that's actually true about every single one of us, which is however you envision the future, However you think about the final return of Jesus or the end of time, 
will necessarily affect the way that you live today. What your vision is of the end impacts the way that you live in the present, in the here and now. So here's what I mean. If you are a Christian, and kind of the understanding that you have is God loved me, and he died on a cross to forgive me of my sins, and he rose uh, again from the dead, and one day he's going to take my soul to be with him in heaven forever, and, and that's all you think that Christianity is all about, then slowly what can happen is that Jesus becomes a little bit irrelevant to the here and now. He only comes in handy when you die, right? So Jesus just becomes like, I need him as my get out of, get out of hell free card when the fireworks go down and when you know, heaven and hell are on the line. But other than that, I don't really need to relate to him now unless I have a crisis or I die. That's when God will be handy to me. Or if you're not a follower of Jesus and maybe your vision of the end is like, you just die and the lights go out. Everything goes dark, and, and, and people have, have invented this story of Christianity just to simply feel good about how to suffer and how to, how to face death, and, and it's just a big lie that we've concocted. If that's your vision, that really you die and that's it, the only thing that, that actually is real and matters is life now, then over time what can happen is that you can actually develop this, this sort of mentality that the, the online business Ashley Madison has developed. I don't know if you know about Ashley Madison, but it's a website that's devoted to helping married people that want to stay married but have an affair on their spouse. So it's like a website devoted to adultery. And their tagline literally says this, life is short, have an affair. Life is short, have an affair. See, that's a worldview that's being offered. Hey, life is short, like why not be unfaithful on your spouse? And maybe if you're not a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't go to that extreme, but you would say, man, life is short, like just live it up. Enjoy the here and now because when we die, we die and things go black. So everything that we can do to experience pleasure and joy and fun is now. It's right now. Let's do that thing now, right? My point is this, that your vision of the end, it necessarily will affect the way that you live today. It already is, whether you realize it or not. Your, what you believe about the future impacts how you're living now. And by the way, that's Paul's driving concern in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's driving concern is that actually because Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead, it has profound impact on how we live and interact with the world today. What Paul is dealing with, if, if you're not uh, uh, very familiar with this letter, you're just jumping in with this, what Paul is dealing with is a group of Christians in the city of Corinth that had basically decided that they did not believe the resurrection of the dead was a thing. Now, they're not talking about Jesus' resurrection. They believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but they did not believe that there would be a future resurrection of the dead. And what Paul has been arguing for in this chapter, what Paul has been fighting for, is that, hey, when you take away the resurrection, you're not taking away some bonus feature of Christianity. You're actually taking away the entire foundation of our faith. If you remove resurrection of the dead, then everything is up for grabs at that point. Everything is up for grabs. Paul has said in this chapter up to this point that if the resurrection of the dead is not real, then Jesus' death is not a saving event. If the resurrection didn't happen, then forgiveness of sins never happened. And Christians have no hope for the future. And God himself would be a liar because we testified about him that he rose him from the dead. And Paul has gone on to say that literally Christians in this world today not only have no hope, but should be pitied above every other person. 
In other words, if the resurrection of the dead isn't real, then Paul says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Like, what are we doing? If all this is is some moral life that we're being invited into, if all this is is a philosophy for how to live today, and then we die and things go black, then we of all people should be pitied above everything else. So here's Paul's point, is what you envision about the end affects the way that you live today. And what he's going to do today in our text is he's going to take this idea of our future hope, our bodily resurrection of the dead, and he's going to like drill deeper into it and show us at least four different things that I want you to see, four questions that we're going to ask that Paul is going to answer for us today. Here's the first one. Is it true? What's it like? How does it happen? And why does it matter? Bodily resurrection. Is it true? What's it like? How does it happen? And why does it matter? So we're going to jump in. You ready? All right, here's the first question. Bodily resurrection, is it true? Look at verse 35. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, at first glance, this question seems like an honest question, doesn't it? And some of you are a little bit offended at Paul's like knee-jerk, very jerkish response to you because you're like, yeah, that is a good question. What type of body will we have uh, when Jesus returns and gives us new bodies? And, and Paul's response here is like, you foolish person. You're like, oh my goodness, I was just curious. Uh, I have for the last several years taught a theology class for our interns. Every year I get to teach this class on our future hope and what happens uh, when Jesus returns finally to this earth. And, and it's such a fun class for me to teach, but inevitably every year the question that gets asked is this question, hey, what type of bodies will we have? And every year I just respond by quoting this verse, you foolish intern, right? How dare you ask such a, no, it's like, that, that's a good question. We're curious about that question. Maybe many of you in the room are right now wondering this very question. So is Paul saying that you're a foolish person? Well, no, because what's happening here is not a legitimate curiosity about this question, but actually what's happening here is more of a philosophical objection to the resurrection. You see, what was happening in Corinth is that they were denying the resurrection. We knew that, but today we find out why they were denying the resurrection. They were denying the resurrection because philosophically they could not wrap their head around how dead people could be given a body again, how their bodies that had died could be raised from the dead. It made no sense. In other words, the Corinthians were thinking something along these lines. Hey, everyone knows that when people die, their heart stops pumping blood and their brainstem gets shut off and, and they go rigor mortis and, and then eventually they start to decompose into dust. Or, or maybe what about those who are cremated and their ashes are scattered all over the place? I mean, how does that work? How does resurrection happen if people are scattered all over? Like literally other people might think about cannibalism. What, what if you have a, a cannibal that eats a Christian? and then digests and metabolizes that Christian into his or her body, and then, and then maybe that person becomes a Christian. The cannibal becomes a Christian. What happens then when Jesus comes back? Like, does only one of them get to come back or both? How does that work? I mean, these are the types of questions, and we might laugh and think they're silly, but the Corinthians were looking at it and saying, nobody, nobody can come back from the dead. That's ridiculous. That's silly. That's, that, that's an absolutely insane claim. Therefore, we don't believe the resurrection of the dead is a thing. In other words, their minds were more uh, 
and, 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 and uh, thinking about reanimation, if you will, than they were thinking about resurrection from the dead. And so they found this very idea of resurrection as ridiculous. And Paul wants to say, hey, it may sound ridiculous to you, but it's actually not nearly as ridiculous as you think. There's stuff in our natural world that God has built into the natural order of things to remind us and point us to resurrection. So look at the two different analogies that Paul is going to offer up. The first one's in verse 36. He says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God, God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed, its own body. This is a profoundly good analogy. His first analogy is related to seeds. Paul says, hey, listen, farmers put little seeds in the ground, and nobody would look at that little seed and think that it's going to turn into something, but that little seed, it dies in the ground, and when it dies in the ground, some, something transformative, something unbelievable happens, and it produces something that you would never expect. So take like an apple seed. Nobody would look at that hard little apple seed and expect that an apple tree that bears fruit that you and I can eat would ever come out of it. I mean, this is a very simple analogy, but he, he's saying this is how God has built in this very idea of resurrection into just the created order of things. So think about acorns. Like no one would look at this as an acorn and ever, ever expect it to turn into this. I mean, it, it's just mind-blowing, isn't it? That something hard and small like this that goes into the ground creates this beautiful tree. Or nobody would look at grains of wheat, these, you know, shells, these hard little grains, and expect it to grow into these wavy, flowy wheat fields, these golden wheat. No, no one would expect that to happen. Or nobody would look at corn kernels and ever think that you could uh, heat them up in the microwave to the point that they turn into that. I mean, it's unbelievable. How does that happen? Who did that for the first time? You know their mind was blown. What just happened? And then they ate it, and they're like, this changes movies forever. Um, no, nobody would, I know this is simple, but nobody looks at a caterpillar and would ever think that after spending some time in a cocoon, it would do this. And yet we've become so accustomed to this in our world that it's, it's lost its amazement. It's, it's lost its wonder. And Paul is saying the same way that that happens, God has actually promised that there's coming a day where when our dead bodies go into the ground, that something profound, something trans, transformative, something unbelievable is going to happen to our very bodies. His second analogy is also related to the natural order of things. Look at verse 39. He says, for not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So Paul's first analogy was seeds. His second analogy is bodies, Bodies. Now, it sounds interesting, but here's essentially what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, look out at the world. Look up at the sky. Look at the forest. Look at the ocean. And what you're going to find is that our world is unbelievable, but it's really diverse. And actually, it requires different types of bodies to survive and thrive into different types of environments. And God, in his brilliance and his wisdom and in his power, he, he knows that to be a human means you have to have a certain type of body to live on planet Earth. 
But to live inside of the ocean, you have to have a different type of a body. And to live in the solar system, you, you have to have a different type of a body, if you will. So the, the sun has a body, if you will. The moon has a, a type of body. The stars have a type of body. He's not trying to say that they're people or that they are made in God's image or anything like that. He's just trying to say that th- this world is diverse. And in God's brilliance and power, he has given each type of thing an appropriate body to live in the environment that it finds itself in. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on this this week because this is his, his main point next week. His main point is essentially to say next week, hey, when God brings this new world to this world, when God re- removes this world of, of its curse of sin, and when God actually brings heaven to earth and the kingdom of God fully here, it, it, it's going to require a specific type of a body to survive there. And, and God, in his brilliance and wisdom, just like he gave the sun a body and just like he gave the moon a body and fish and animals and people a body fit for their environment, he is going to give Christians a body fit for the environment of the new earth that he is bringing when he comes. This is a profoundly good analogy. So here's the point. The first point is that the Corinthians are looking at Paul and saying, this very idea of decomposed bodies being reanimated is ridiculous. Like, who could believe it? And Paul's response is, it's not ridiculous and it's not reanimation. That the very natural order of things is teaching us that certain things die and they go into the ground and something powerful gets transformed when they come out. The second question that we're going to examine is, what's it like? Bodily resurrection, what is it like? Well, look at verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So I want you to think about what your body, if you're a follower of Jesus, both is now and will be like when Jesus returns. Notice the words that Paul is choosing to focus on here. The state of our bodies now, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, is as Paul describes. We are perishable, meaning we grow old, things stop working, we decay, and then there's coming a day where we're going to die, and then our bodies are going to fully decay into the dust, into, ground, into the ground. Paul says that we're currently dishonorable. What he's referring to here is probably a lot of things, but at bare minimum, he's saying that we use our physical bodies to do dishonorable things, that we actually use our bodies to sin against God. We use our bodies to sin against one another. And, and, and we acknowledge this as Christians. Every Sunday, we gather to stand in a room together as bodily creatures and to say that I've used my body this last week to sin against God and to, and to sin against others. We say we've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, we are truly sorry and we humbly repent. We, we've done things in our body with our eyes, with our mouth, with our hands, with our thoughts, with our emotions that are sinful, dishonorable. Our bodies are dishonorable. He goes on to say we're weak, 
meaning we, we get frail and, and we get tired and we get injured and hurt. We have limitations. Last night I went to bed and my left foot was hurting because I had ran and something got tweaked in my left foot. I woke up today and my left foot's fine. Now my right foot hurts. I don't know why, it just my right foot hurt because I woke up, right? And you have that experience, like what's happening to my body? Well, Paul is saying our bodies are weak. They don't do what we want them to do. They don't function in the way that we want. And then he finally, he says that our bodies are natural. And what he means here is that we are only fit to live in this world now. Like, we see this world decaying around us. We see this world uh, having the effects of sin. But our bodies are only fit for this world. Can you imagine if Jesus brought heaven to earth right now but didn't change our bodies and we were forced to live in the new heavens and the new earth in this current body? That'd be miserable. We'd eventually grow old and too weak to enjoy it, and then we would die. Paul's saying our bodies are natural. But, but think about the state of our bodies at the resurrection of the dead, when Jesus returns and raises us from the dead. Well, here's what he says. He says that our bodies then will be imperishable. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's coming a day where the body that you will be given will never grow old, it will never stop working, it will never decay, and you will never be able to die ever again. There's coming a day, Paul says, when our bodies as followers of Jesus will be transformed into glorious bodies. And what he means is that just like we use our bodies right now in dishonorable ways, there's coming a day where we will not even be able to use our bodies in dishonorable ways. The way we live will be glorious and fitting as the image bears that God has made us. You see, God has actually made us to image him and to reflect him in the world. And the body that's coming for you as a Christian is a body that won't sin against God in thought, word, or deed. And there will never come a day where we gather together in our bodies and say, and we've done it again, and we've, we've sinned against you and against our neighbors. Only what we will experience is the joy of assurance of his love for us. We'll actually be able to stand in his presence and say, I've loved you today with my whole heart, with all of my thoughts, with all of my deeds. I've not sinned against my neighbor. I've, I've done the thing that you wanted me to do because I'm a glorious body now. That day's coming for you if you're a Christian. Paul says that one day our bodies are gonna go from weak to powerful, meaning you will no longer be frail. You'll no longer wake up sore or get tired or be injured or hurt or have some of the limitations that your current physical body has today. You're gonna be powerful as a body and then finally, he says, one day our bodies are going to go from natural to spiritual. Now, when he says this, he does not mean that you're going to be a floaty soul in heaven, right? We get that idea from uh, more of like a Greek philosophy or paganism or Tom and Jerry, one of those three things, right? Tom and Jerry, you know, the frying pan gets hit over the head and one of them dies and their soul floats off to heaven. If that's your vision of what happens, like it's a totally wrong percep perception of what the Bible actually teaches. What, what he's saying here is not uh, natural equals physical and spiritual equals non-physical. What he's talking about is uh, this idea of being spiritual as being energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that our bodies are gonna actually be physical bodies that are now fully energized and fully empowered by the Holy Spirit, fit perfectly to live inside of the new earth that God is bringing when he returns. And so Gordon Fee helpfully says this about what our resurrected bodies will be like. The answer, as with Christ, it will be the same, yet not the same. 
this body, but adapted to the new conditions of heavenly existence. Sown one way, it's raised another, but the same body is what is sown and what is raised. So friends, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, will be raised. You will be recognizable. It will be you, but a transformed, redeemed body. How amazing is that? Andrew Wilson says it this way. He says, my future body is to my current body what an oak tree is to an acorn. Identifiably the same, but with the life of the new emerging from the corpse of the old, but at the same time greater to an unimaginable degree. So if you're sitting here and you're like, I can't even wrap my head around that. Yeah, that's the point, right? That's the point. Like the same way you can't wrap your head around how an acorn grows into an oak tree, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? What your body will be like when you die and Jesus returns and resurrects all of our bodies again. It's hard to imagine and wrap our our hearts and heads around what our physical bodies will be like. But friends, I want you to just imagine for just a minute that there is coming a day, and remember, there is coming a day where you and I will die, where we will stop breathing, our heart will stop pumping blood, our brainstem will get shut off, and our bodies will decompose into the ground. That day is coming. But as true as that is, there is coming a day when because of the grace and love of Jesus, he will literally physically raise your body from the dead. And he's gonna transform your body so that it can live in this redeemed earth in a powerful way. Your heart will start to beat again. Your blood is gonna be pumping through your your, your body, your brain stem is going to get turned back on, and you will be able to enjoy life on the new earth in a body the way that God intended all of this to go in the first place. How amazing is that? You're going to be imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. I love these words of Andrew Wilson just to get your imagination kind of twirling a little bit. He says, when I consider the resurrection body of Jesus, his transformed physicality, whereby he could appear in a locked room and would never die, but could still hug his friends and enjoy a barbecue on the beach, I start to get quite excited about that. Teleporting looks like a distinct possibility. Perhaps even flying is not off the table. And I know that you might sit here and be like, this is just silly. Like, do you guys really believe this? Um, Isn't this just wishful thinking? And I just want to say like, it's actually not wishful thinking. You should think about this more. The, the problem with Christians today is that we don't think about this enough. How many times in the last few years have you thought about long enough, more than five, 10 minutes, the fact that there's coming a day where God is going to resurrect your body, but it'll be in a transformed way, full of imperishable, powerful, glorious nature. That's what's coming for you. And one of the biggest problems with Christians today, in my opinion, is that we have no vision for this, and all we think about is life now. And that profoundly affects the way that we live and interact with this whole thing that we call Christianity. This is amazing, and you should daydream about this more. That leads me to the third thing I want you to see is bodily resurrection. Well, how does it happen? How does it actually happen? Look at verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. 
Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I love what Paul is doing here, and he wants us to think about this first Adam, this first man, this man of the dust, as he calls him. In creation, what God did is profound. He reaches down into the dust, and he forms this first man, and he breathes into this man the breath of life. And Adam becomes a living being. That's amazing. That's a gift. But you know the story that Adam, he actually uses his life not to honor God, but to rebel, to reject God, to sin against God. And in so doing, when Adam sinned and made that decision to reject God as our representative, as the representative of every human that lives after him, we're actually given his sinfulness. And now you and I are born in sin. We're born in dysfunction. And we're born with bodies that naturally want to reject God and rebel against God. And now we bear the image of the man of dust. We, we decay and we die and we suffer in this world. And there's, there's brokenness and there's sin. Everything, literally everything about our lives is impacted by this man of dust. And because of our sin and his sin, we are actually going to die one day and to dust we shall return. But Paul wants us to think about another Adam, the second Adam. So in creation, there's one Adam, but in redemption, there's another man, another Adam. This one's not from dust. This is a man from heaven. And he, he has actually had an even bigger and even more profound impact on our day-to-day lives. Instead of bringing death, this man of heaven, he actually dies for our sin on a cross, taking our place. He actually rises again from the dead three days later. And what he does on on the third day in his life and in his death is he comes to people like you and I who are dead in sin, and he's not just alive himself, but because he's alive, he's able to give us life. And, And though God in creation reaches down into the dust, and he forms this man and breathes into this man the dust, the dust or the breath of life, what God does now is he promises that there's coming a day where when the Christian dies, he's going to gather your bone dust, as it were, and he's going to reform you into the person that you are, and he's going to breathe into you new breath of life so that you can live forever with Jesus in a body that God intended. This is the, the, the biggest part of the gospel that Christians have often neglected, but it's the thing that gave early church members such a hope for how to suffer well, such a hope for how to give away their possessions, such a hope for how to live in the world and and face enemies and love them and offer blessing to those who are persecuting them, to live an alternative lifestyle because they knew that this world is not all there is, but there's another life coming. There's another body coming. There's another world coming in which I will get to live forever with Jesus in a resurrected body. What good news is that? The second Adam, Jesus, he breathes into us the breath of life, both spiritually makes us alive and there's coming a day where he's gonna make our bone dust come back alive. And that leads me to the the last thing, the final thing, bodily resurrection. Why does this matter? Why does it matter? N.T. Wright says this. He says, bodily resurrection is not just one odd bit of our hope. It is the element that gives shape and meaning to the rest of the story that we tell about God's ultimate purpose. If we squeeze it to the margins, we don't lose an extra feature like buying a car that happens to not have electric, electrically operated mirrors. We lose the central engine, which, dri- which drives it and gives every other component its reason for working. 
Friends, there's a lot of ways that we could apply this, but just the one way that I, I want to apply it as we close today is that when you get a vision for bodily resurrection, the fact that your body will be raised one day, this is actually going to shape you into a person that has a countercultural counter vision for your life today. See, here's what man-centered religion has as its vision. Man-centered religion says Jesus is a get-out-of-hell-free card. You don't really need him to build your life on. You don't need to, uh, in any sort of way, have involvement with him today because he only matters for when you die. You don't have to be concerned with him now. You don't have to be conformed into his image now. Just live your life now, and you have fire insurance when things go down at the end of history. That's man-centered religion. And what happens is now people that buy into that become very disinterested in this whole idea of Christianity because it only matters for life after death. The world's vision says something like this. Hey, life is short. Have an affair. Pursue your own desires. Acquire as much money and wealth and possessions as possible. Just try to be comfortable and enjoy pleasure and get toys because this life is all that there is and one day you're gonna die. It's gonna be the end of things. And yet the Christian vision is so different because the Christian vision says life isn't short. There's actually this life and then there's the life to come. There's life after death when we make a, a, a short detour in heaven. And then there's life after life after death when Jesus returns from heaven to this earth and raises up our bodies and our souls are reunited with our bodies and we get to live on this redeemed earth forever with him. Getting to do the things that we've longed to do. Getting to live the way that we've longed to live. Getting to explore the things that we've longed to explore all with our hearts full of love and faithfulness and fidelity to our God. And when you believe that, when you live in light of that, when that shapes the way that you see the future, it has profound impact on how you see your life now. How you relate to money and possessions. How you relate to marriage and singleness what your posture becomes to things like sex and sexuality, how you envision your physical life now on earth because it matters, how you relate to suffering because it is temporary and it's not even to be compared to the weight of glory that's coming for you and how you relate to every single person around you. This deeply matters. Paul says this in Colossians 3, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So frontline, may we seek the things that are above. May we wait for the revealing of Christ because that's when our real life is going to get started. Amen? I want to invite you. Would you stand with me? We come to this meal, and the thing that I want you to note today about this meal is that this is a reminder of the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus that was broken for us and shed for us for our sins. Jesus says that we should do this regularly so that we could actually proclaim his death until he comes. And here's what I want you to notice about this meal. Just as this, this meal is a physical act, like you're gonna show up to this table and you're gonna take bread that's physical, you're gonna take a cup that's physical, and you're gonna ingest this into your bodies, it's a reminder that Jesus is physically alive today. That he's not just in our imagination, he's not just a spirit, he's not just a thought, 
He's not a philosophy that Jesus is in a human body right now, glorified forever as God, but in a human body. And he is going to physically, just like this bread and wine are physical, he's going to physically return. And we will physically see him face to face. So as you receive the body, the blood of Jesus, I just want you to remember the physical nature of what's going to happen in this new world that Jesus is bringing so that you can enjoy it with your new bodies. We don't think about this enough. This is a moment for you to set your hope on the future. So maybe you come today with suffering in your heart. Maybe you come with a diagnosis that's scary. Maybe you're facing death in ways that are more real to you than they've ever been. Maybe you're facing chaos and sin and dysfunction in your, in your own life or in your family or whatever. I don't know what you're carrying, but this meal is the love of God meeting you in that place, reminding you that there's a whole new world coming. There's a whole new body coming. And we look to that day. If you're not a Christian, man, we are so stoked that you're with us. We hope that you show up every week. We hope that you get into a community group and ask questions and explore the claims that we're making today. We really do believe this to be true. This, this is written into our most ancient creeds as a church. From 2,000 years ago, we've been saying the same thing every single year after year after year for 2,000 years. And so if, if you're not yet someone who believes this, man, just be around. Don't take this meal because this is a, a faith meal for people who have been baptized to demonstrate their faith and repentance. But we want you to just be around, be in our church, ask good questions. So followers of Jesus, you're invited now. Come receive the, the, the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for your sake.